Ja, hallo och hjärtligt välkommen till en ny episode av Utvecklingspotentiale. Mitt namn är er Mattias Slettholm och jag sitter här i studio sammen med min kollega Katarina Bu. I denna episoden så ska vi höra ett upptag fra en debatt som som utrikesdepartementet och Tanksmin agenda eh, arrangerade sammen, nämligen Norge i säkerhetsrådet er menneskerettighetene i spill. Hvem er det som deltar der, Katarina? Du, det er utenriksminister Ine Eriksen Søreide. Og så er det tidligere utenriksminister, nå parlamentariker på Stortinget, Espen Barth Eide for Arbeiderpartiet. Han har også varit tidligere specialutsändning for FN på Kypros. Så han känner jo Sikkerhetsrådet godt. Og så er det... Bruno Stagno Ugarte som är er nästleder i Human Rights Watch han har er också tidigare utrikesminister för Costa Rica och og jobbat också eh, mye med säkerhetsrådet och så är er det Jon Peder Egnes eh, generalsekretär i Amnesty International Norge som ju också har varit eh, gäst här i utvecklingspotentialet tidigare. Mm. Så vi, vi går rätt in i en inledning som Ine Eriksen Søreide har och så blir det påföljande debatt. Detta föregår på engelsk så då passar det bara gott att se si Enjoy. Good morning. This meeting is in English, so I hope that's not a problem. My name is Sigrun Oslan. I am the acting director of uh, the Think Tank Agenda. I'm very pleased to see so many people here on a Friday morning. Uh, last day of January, first day of snow. We are very happy to organize this event together with the Norwegian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And um, I hope you find something to eat and drink. I th- there's probably not enough for everyone since there's so many but uh those who were early hopefully had some breakfast we're here because norway is running for election um at the security council we're asking how important is that how can we contribute uh, can we actually make a difference and what's in it for us um to the extent that that matters we will spend the next hour discussing Norway's campaign to the UN Security Council. It's 20 years since we last held that seat. Uh, and in June, we will be competing against Canada and Ireland for the period 2021 to 22. Um, there are a number of questions that we could address, uh, as this really is about Norway's global diplomatic role, what we can do, how much we as a small but also rich country actually matter in the world. Uh, but we're concentrating today on human rights. Will Norway manage to protect, promote, and be an outspoken defender of human rights if elected? Will Norway pass the test when having to negotiate with the strong veto powers in the Council? Will we be able to combine both being an allied and a critic of the United States? And uh, what will be Norway's priorities and opportunities if elected? Uh, We have an excellent panel with us today, but before we invite the panel to the stage, I would like to first give the floor to uh, our Minister of Foreign Affairs, Ms. Ina Maria Eriksen Søreide. Welcome. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. It's always such a pleasure to see people waking up early in the morning and starting their day like this. Uh, I started my day with uh, something that Sigrun did not mention. It's also Brexit Day today. So... um, There's a lot of things taking place at the same time. But I would just like to uh, start by saying thank you very much to Sigrun, to Agenda, uh, for co-hosting this seminar together with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And I would also like to thank uh, one of my predecessors, Espen, uh, for participating, uh, and also Bruno Garte. Uh, Very nice to have you here, and I know that uh, you will... uh, give us some perspectives from the outside that will be very useful for us also uh, when we look at how we are going to, if we get elected, perform in the Security Council. Uh, Jon Peder Egnes, uh, also uh, wonderful to have you here. Um, we ha- I would say we have a lot of meetings and discussions on human rights on a daily basis, which is very valuable uh, to us. As you are all aware, we are competing uh, with Canada and Ireland for one of the two non-permanent seats in the Security Council for 21 to 22. And of course, we are facing tough competition because the three of our countries are, I would say, quite like-minded and we work a lot with the same issues and we have much of the same values that we want to promote uh, both inside and outside the Security Council. We still think we have a fair chance of this competition 
But as I've always underlined, when three countries like ours compete, uh, we of course also uh, need to focus on what gives us, in, in our opinion, an edge over the other competitors, uh, because I think we're all three good. For a small country, the number one priority for Norway would be a rules-based international order. That's what we have strived and worked to promote for decades. That was actually also on top of our agenda when we last were in the Security Council for 2001 to 2002. And as I understand, we'll get back to some of that later on, so I will not focus on this uh, right now. To, to safeguard and to strengthen the international order is a top foreign policy priority for a country like Norway. And I can say that also with Espen present, because this is something that goes across governments in Norway. This has always been uh, the number one priority. And in that, upholding human rights is an essential and integral part of our foreign policy, our development policy. As we all know, the rules-based international order, including human rights, is under increasing pressure. And we see this and we meet this on a daily basis. And this is not only an issue with the Security Council, it's an issue overall. We see it on women's rights, uh, we see it on the rights of uh, human rights defenders, and we can see it across so many topics that human rights are under pressure, and we have to work together to uphold them. And for decades, having the Security Council working on human rights issues was not an easy topic. I would say that the Security Council, in a way, shied away from many of these topics for a very, very long time. And it was actually only in the 60s where the Security Council took some, I would say, bolder steps in the direction of addressing, for instance, apartheid. So it took some time. And we also uh, saw that the Security Council started to be more vigilant about, for instance, the more systematic violations of human rights than the Council had been before. They focused more on the lack of fundamental freedoms and also on the absence of rule of law. Because it became more and more evident that the lack of basic human rights could lead to conflict. And as we all know, the Security Council does not only mandate military solutions to conflict, it also mandates prevention of conflict and trying to solve conflicts before they become uh, impossible to solve. There are some powerful members that still argue that human rights issues are uh, only for the member countries themselves and not something that should be on the Council's agenda. We are taking a fundamentally different approach to this. We are convinced that human rights are essential for ensuring peace and of course also aware, as we all know, that human rights violations can very often be the first sign of an emerging conflict. When basic human rights are violated, something bigger and even worse often comes uh, next. And as an elected member, we will of course bring this approach to the Council. And it should be no surprise to anyone, not the permanent members, not our competitors, and not the others who we hopefully will sit together with as non-permanent members. As an integral part of our foreign policy has always been our strive to prevent conflicts. We bring with us, I would say, decades of uh, experience in trying to prevent, to try to mediate, and to have peace and reconciliation on top of our agenda. And we want to try to make the working methods in the Security Council more inclusive and also allow more participation of civil society. We have seen some positive trends lately, but we still need to see more. We also need to combine human rights principles with concrete solutions in specific, uh, in specific country situations. Building on the experience we have from peace and reconciliation, and I think that Colombia may provide a very good example of how to tie this together. In Colombia, we discussed and negotiated a long time before the actual negotiation started. It was done more or less quietly. No one really knew about it. And two of the main issues in the peace agreement that was facilitated by Norway 
was human rights perspective when it comes to victims' rights and women's rights. And why is this relevant for the Security Council? Well, this is a peace agreement that unites the Security Council in the strive for implementation. And to continue that unity in the Security Council, in a council that sometimes also divide in, in how, they, uh, how they discuss these issues, is, um, is important. Let me just lastly point to one other topic where human rights and the Security Council is an important couple. A major part of the Security Council's work is to establish, to determine mandates for the peacekeeping operations. And today, nearly all peacekeeping operations have a human rights mandate. <coughs> but that is not a given. And we still have to strive for this to happen. So, in order to save lives and to contribute to the realization of human rights every day, the work of the Security Council when it comes to the mandates and the peacekeeping operations is extremely important. We, of course, would like to work actively on this file because we think it is part and parcel of what the Security Council does. But we also see that the Security Council has passed a number of resolutions that has been very important to the agenda when it comes to, uh, to human rights. And let me just mention the Women, Peace and Security Agenda, which we this year celebrate, 1325. Uh, and <laughs> it's quite funny because uh, I just it's a, it's a bit of a uh, side remark, but we had a reception a week and a half ago, uh, the then Minister of Culture and me, and uh, when I said 1325 in the room, everyone nodded. And I think that was the only room that everyone knew was what 1325 was. Uh, here, I also see people nodding. I think that you also know what this is all about. But the Security Council also passed resolution on uh, conflict-related sexual violence, an issue where Norway has been strongly engaged for time, and also children and armed conflict. And all of these resolutions, they touch upon basic human rights. And that's why they are so important. As I mentioned, we would like to include civil society. We have a lot of good experiences with doing that. We have seen that when we have been taking a champion role in promoting for the past 20 years the annual Human Rights Defenders uh, Resolution in the UN uh, Human Rights Council, it has not been possible without the very strong engagement and inclusion from civil society. And that is why we have been successful in adopting consensus resolutions on human rights defenders year after year in a climate where that is almost impossible nowadays. So thanks to the civil society and the work that has been laid down uh, together with us, it has been possible. I think that even though we see challenges in the Security Council, there is also a unique legitimacy to the Security Council that has been retained throughout many of these troublesome periods. We have also taken a lot of inspiration and experience, especially from Sweden, on how they performed as an elected member. Because there is no doubt that there is a difference between being a permanent member and an elected member. And the influence you have as a non-permanent member is very much, or very much hangs on how you work together with countries, both inside and outside the Council, to get things done. And that's where we have a lot of inspiration from our Swedish neighbors. Um, we think that using the momentum that has been created by Sweden, by Germany, by other countries, is something that we would like to bring with us into the Council if we are elected. And this is something that we continue to discuss with our Nordic neighbor, our neighbors, our European neighbors, and I do think that that is the right approach to this. Thank you. Thank you so much. Please have a seat. Yeah. Let's see, we can... Uh, and I forgot to mention, yes, that the reason we started at 8.15, for those of you who usually come here, is that it's Brexit Day and yes. <laughs> the minister had to be on uh, the radio. Uh, it's nice to be able to talk about international collaboration on a day where we're kind of also <laughs> celebrating or uh, marking uh, the reluctance to more international collaboration. Uh, anyhow, uh, I'd like to welcome up to the stage uh, Mr. Espen Bort-Aide. He's a member of Parliament. 
Uh, he is the representative of the Norwegian Labour Party. He's former Minister of Foreign Affairs and Defence. He served as the UN Special Envoy to Cyprus. So uh, we discussed before, and he has, he also has a user perspective of the Security <laughs> Council, <laughs> yes. which is always important. Uh, Mr. Bruno Stanio Ugarte, and I'm sorry if I didn't pronounce your name correctly, but I'm doing my best, uh, is the Deputy Executive Director for Advocacy at Human Rights Watch. Uh, before joining Human Rights Watch, he was Executive Director of Security Council Report from 2011 to 14, Foreign Minister of Costa Rica from 2006 to 2010, and Ambassador to the United Nations from 2002 to 2006, among a number of other foreign postings. We're delighted. Uh, to have you here, and I think it's very healthy for us to have an outsider perspective on this campaign and, and the role that Norway could play in the Security Council. And then last but not least, Jun Peter Egenes. He's the Secretary General of Amnesty International, which he has been for 12 years. Amnesty International Norway. Um, Amnesty is one of the world's largest human rights organizations with more than 7 million members and supporters globally. Very much welcome to all of you. Give them all an applause, please. Um, now, I wanted to start discussing the, the contexts of being a candidate uh, and start with you, Espen. Why, why is it important that Norway has the seat? It is important, and we give the government full support. Ian and I have the same pin today. Normally, we have different <laughs> pins. But uh, in, uh, in this issue, uh, it's a very strong, solid support from parliament to what the government does as it was when we campaigned the last time around, and I was State Secretary of Foreign Affairs in 2000. We won, by the way, I yeah. just mentioned that. But we also had very solid support from Parliament. It does matter. It is important. It's the right thing to do. Norway believes in multilateral cooperation. Norway believes in the UN. It's our time at the wheel, and we are there if we are elected as an elected member. We're not there just to promote Norway. We're there on behalf of everybody who was, doesn't have a permanent seat. And, uh, uh, and if you believe in the institution, that's the right thing to do. It's hard work to get there. It's hard work on the inside. It's tough compromises, tough decisions. But it's the right thing to do, and we're behind the government on this one. In Eriksen Søreide, you mentioned and you talked about human rights. It's the topic of today. I think you'll have uh, many expectations uh, in with regards to human rights if we win this seat. Um, and we're competing against Canada, uh, which some would say has been more outspoken, uh, for example, more critical to China on its human rights. Um, in 2018, Canada criticized Saudi Arabia for arresting peaceful women activists. Um, can we do as good a job and be as tough as the other countries on human rights? Yes, well, because I, I, I disagree a bit with the premise, because we have also criticized, as has Canada and other countries, both the situation in Xinjiang as one example, and we've been quite vocal about this, both in the Human Rights Council, bilaterally with China, and also in other international fora, as we have done with Saudi Arabia. What I think is most important when we think about human rights and the international agenda is what gives results. And uh, we've been discussing this several times. For instance, the, um, the balance between the quiet diplomacy and the outspoken uh, tweets or statements, uh, the bilateral meetings where you take this case by case uh, versus the um, Human Rights Council issues on the UPRs, for instance. What we try to do is find the right mixture of different measures that will be useful in the certain context. And I will give you just one example. In Tanzania, about a year ago, we again saw a crackdown on LGBT uh, and, and the rights of sexual minorities. What we have seen is that when we got feedback from organizations working on the ground and from organizations in Norway, like FRI, they said, for minorities in Tanzania right now, there is a real danger of being associated with Western support, because then they are the minorities. They are seen as the reason why, for instance, a Western country stops the, the aid to Tanzania, why there are no schoolings and healthcare systems. So in that case, we have to work in a different way than we do in other circumstances where outright criticism is the only thing that, that works. Saudi Arabia is the same example. To some extent, the outright criticism works. Other, uh, other times, we see that human rights activists themselves or their families do not want to be named because they, f they fear greater uh, oppression and, and danger. 
And we also see one feature that, that I would like us all to discuss here, which, which is a bit, I would say, a bit more than worrying right now. Up until last year's, usually countries have felt bad when they were criticized for human rights violations. That is not necessarily the case anymore. There are many leaders in many countries who now do not take offense at all if they are criticized for human rights violations. And again, that makes us have to work a bit differently sometimes to get the same results. Hmm. Mr. Estanio, uh, you're uh, looking at Norway from, from the Security Council perspective. Um, what do you think it will take for Norway to make a difference uh, if elected to the Security Council? And can we achieve anything on human rights? I certainly hope you can achieve a lot of things, but I think you also have to be willing to leave some skin in the game. <laughs> By that I mean mm. that it has to have a certain, it has to hurt. Mm. Otherwise you will just be taken for granted. Um, you will be railroaded by the P5, including your Western allies, so France and the UK and the US. Uh, so that's where you certainly have to be able to differentiate yourself, work with the other elected members. Mm. There will be allies there. And as the minister have said, there is a large constituency of non-Security Council members who will be willing to work with mm. you. Mm. And there have been many, many precedents of small states being non-permanent members in the Security Council who have actually made a difference. Just this morning, for example, the minister mentioned 1325, the Women, Peace and Security Agenda. The country that actually began Women, Peace and Security was Bangladesh. Mm. The country that actually brought the children in armed conflict agenda to the Security Council was Portugal. Mm. The country that brought the protection of civilians issue to the Security Council was Canada, with Norway then following up and taking up the torch. The countries that actually brought cross-border aid delivery in an incredible precedent mm. to Syria, <coughs> because none of the permanent five cared about aid delivery in Syria, were Australia and Luxembourg. So there are possibilities for small states but they need to be strategic. They need to be willing to leave some skin in the game, which means, yes, understanding that the P5, notwithstanding the fact that we tend to divide them into the P3, the United States, France, and the UK as the good guys, China and Russia as the bad guys, sorry, they all have, they all have a certain degree of solidarity mm. because they all want to have control of the game, which means that they also want to hold the pen we have this horrible system yeah. Yeah. where each of the P5 basically controls the pen. If you want to work on Myanmar, it's the United Kingdom that will lead. And what if the United Kingdom doesn't have any ink in the pen because they don't have the political courage, mm. which actually was the case? That is where, for example, Norway has to be ready to tell the Brits, I'm sorry, we're going to use our own pen. Mm. We're going to lead because you guys are failing in your responsibility. There will be costs, but there are also many opportunities. Mm. We focus on the council, which is that chamber you all know, but the council also has an underworld mm. of subsidiary <laughs> bodies that nobody really knows, the sanctions committees, the working mm. groups, and so forth. As much as we talk about the veto in the council itself, in the underworld, basically things are done by consensus, which means that Norway, the vote of Norway is necessary for most of those subsidiary bodies. This gives Norway tremendous leverage. Mm. It's a way of using the veto for good in the subsidiary bodies. And finally, one has to be very alert to the fact that there has been an expansion in the use or the threat of the use of the veto, mm. which we've seen on Syria many, many times, but it's not only Syria. And here, unfortunately, we have to reverse a tendency, which is the silence when the UN Charter is basically abused and trampled on. I'll give you one reference and I'll stop. In 2014, Crimea, there was a draft resolution brought to the fourth by Lithuania to actually condemn the non-respect for the territorial integrity of Ukraine. That draft resolution was vetoed by the Russian Federation. Nobody who doesn't understand the intricacies of the UN Charter saw anything wrong with that. But every single ambassador sitting around that council knew what they were doing and not challenging Vitaly Cherkin, the Russian ambassador, when he raised his hand and he vetoed that resolution because it's a bit technical, it was a chapter six resolution on a country where Ukraine, where Russia presumably was a party to the dispute, which would have meant that Russia did not have the right to veto that resolution mm. because it was a party to the dispute. But there you had France, the US and the UK and everybody else allowing Russia to basically trample and expand the use of the veto to chapter six resolutions when you're a party to the dispute. That is shameful. If that ever happens again, and if Norway is a member, 
I hope I'll see the Norwegian ambassador's hand going up. Jönpjörn, uh, listening to this, what do you think is could be skin in the game? And, and what are the most important dilemmas that Norway will face as member of the council? Well, uh, I, I think the, f the first and probably the most important dilemma is the prioritization. Um, we have two years. It's a very, very short time. Mm. I think we've learned from the Swedes that they were very prioritized on, mm. on women, peace and, and reconciliation and security, sorry. Um, and I think there's a, a general consensus that they actually made some inroads mm. in that area. So I think, and, and looking at the campaign up until now, it seems that it is basically kind of all over the place. We're going to do everything that's within the mandate of, of the Security Council. I think there needs to be a, a prioritization. And when you prioritize, you deprioritize. And when you're in the on the Security Council, you're going to deprioritize something really, really important that might even you know, cost lives. So you'll be criticized. I might be the one criticizing. Uh, but uh, you know, so I think, first of all, the prioritization of what is the kind of the, the thrust of our two years within the Security Council. But then we have the dilemmas that we have touched upon, and I'll, I'll also use an example that coming from the campaign in, in September last year, our Prime Minister meets al-Sisi at the midst of his oppression of, of um, protests and, and, and dissidents in Egypt. I think he had at that time recently arrested 2,000 people. There's a meeting between him and, and Solberg, and according to her own office, she does not mention this at all. I think that is problematic. I think, and I think it's wrong. I don't. I also think it's wrong tactics, by the way. Um, but but if you if you sort of shy away from what you normally do uh, because you're in a campaign, and once again I have the media, but I also the the, the office of the prime minister was was quoted in that uh, article. Uh, I don't think it, it it sort of brings your your campaign forward if you show that you're willing to compromise on your ideals. Uh, so that's, uh, and, and I think, and, and, and my colleague here said the same, you will step into those dilemmas as a member of the Security Council as well, both within the Security Council and with your activities outside of the Security Council, where you have to, as far as I'm concerned, you have to show that you are the same country with the same values and ideals and outspokenness that you were before you were on the Council. So those are the things that I'd like to mention. I think we're getting into the dilemmas that you that the foreign minister pointed at in terms of can you be an activist and and full of principles and still be uh, effective? Uh, you wanted to comment on that? Yeah, because I think th that will always be raised as a as a dilemma. Uh, but I think the example of Egypt is a very a very interesting and very good one because um, just after uh, Prime Minister had met Sisi, I met him for about ha one and a half hour, and I also met my colleague Sana Shukri. And the part and parcel of both of these conversations, the bilateral meetings, were human rights. So my point is, we do not change our foreign policy, even though we're a candidate for the Security Council. We work as we have worked before on what, what works with human rights, what do not work with human rights. And as I mentioned, there are some different tactics sometimes to, to get results. But the fact of the matter is that, of course, we want all countries in the UN to vote for us. We know that they will not, because not all countries will vote for us. But those who like our foreign policy with our human rights focus, they know from before that this is how we're going to act. Those who do not like it will not start liking it now. And, and that is also why we've been talking about the same issues, focusing on the same issues now as we did before. Espen, yeah. activist approach or silent diplomacy, what works best? Or uh, more broadly, both depending on context. <laughs> so, so the thing is that this wise diplomacy is to calibrate when you speak loudly and when you speak more discreetly. Mm -hmm. And what I would always defend dialogue: you should speak to mm -hmm. everybody. You should also say what you think. Mm -hmm. But the idea that you should sort of abstain from meeting people is generally a rather bad idea. I mean, there are exceptions, but as a general rule, maintain contact because the, and maintain contact on several issues because that actually raises the opportunity for also dealing with the difficulties. Issues. Mm. If you only focus on the most difficult issues, you will probably lose, uh, you know, the attention of the, of the others. So this is very complicated, and it's more complicated in reality than it looks from the outside. I, I agree with that. But I, I w Bruno said something, two very important things I quickly pick up on. One, um, one of them is the underworld. Mm. When we were there last time, we we were took a leading role in the sanctions committee on Iraq. Now, later developments, of course, changed everything, but at the time. We clearly managed to move the humanitarian perspective better into that because the Americans wanted to boycott any product that theoretically could be weaponized, including chlorine. 
which is in a country where 40 degrees you, you can't really live without. So we, we calibrated that and, and we had a significant impact because good people with technical knowledge actually provide the technical knowledge in that underworld body, which was quite important at the time. So then there are many examples as one of them. And the other one is that it, it's very important to understand that the Security Council is actually two things. It's a compromise in 1945 between two principles. It's the the century before that of a, of a great power concert of the, the, you know, the big guys. And then uh, that's the five. And then the ten are the representatives of the rest. It's a more modern, distributive, democratic principle. That's always a collision. And we need to know that there is a solidarity between the five, even when they deeply disagree on substance, they want to protect each other's privilege. And the rest of us have to challenge that privilege on a daily basis. And so that's also something that is extremely important, particularly now in a world which is more conflictual than it was 20 years ago. It, it wasn't free, I mean, it was, we had a lot of trouble. But you know, now, back then, there were several issues where one great power cared and the other couldn't care less. Mm -hmm. So if somebody wanted to deal with Sierra Leone, the other said, <coughs> I don't care, but be my guest, here's the mandate, go mm -hmm. out, fix. Today, in most conflicts, the council itself is divided on the outcome. Mm -hmm. Look at Syria. Mm -hmm. And that makes this fine-tuning uh, that you can do as a dedicated small member actually even more important mm -hmm. because you can do the smaller things. You can't fix the whole issue, but you can do the smaller things on the inside. Bruno. <coughs> Just a couple of thoughts. One is um, about the balance between private and public diplomacy. First of all, I think there's many missed opportunities of actually trying to coordinate with other states mm. so that some can use a certain degree of private diplomacy, but somebody has to have the megaphone. Mm. And unfortunately, what has happened too often is that too many are just doing the private diplomacy. Mm -hmm. um, so there has to be larger coordination. So for example, Xinjiang and what's happening with the Uyghurs in China. Nobody really wants to tackle the Chinese on their own. Okay, but then there should be some degree of cost sharing. If you have a, a coalition of states that come together and all unitedly somehow speak out against China for what is happening with the Uyghurs, that's different because China can probably tackle one, but it, it has more difficulties in tackling 12 or 15. That's a very different ballgame. It changes the dynamics of the game. And then the other, the other aspect is that when the Security Council is failing, Security Council members, and particularly the non-permanent members, have to be the first in saying the Security Council is failing to address this issue. Mm. And actually using other mechanisms, Syria, which you mentioned, mm. the Security Council basically tackled the chemical weapons, mm. but it has cared about nothing else. Mm. Nothing else, mm. really. We all knew that there was a problem with accountability in Syria. Mm. How was that somehow addressed? Imperfectly, but in a very creative way. It was Liechtenstein. Mm. in the General Assembly, which basically led in the establishment of an independent international investigative mechanism, which is a <coughs> prosecutor-like body. Mm. Unprecedented. Mm. This was the General Assembly establishing a unique accountability mechanism that the Security Council was incapable of doing. Mm. Now, I can't tell you how much the P3, the US, France, and the UK did not like this idea to begin with, but it was little Liechtenstein that led in the General Assembly. So there are ways of filling in for the voids of the Security Council. But that's where you need the non-permanence to also recognize the Security Council is not living up to its responsibilities. Therefore, we can activate the General Assembly, the Human Rights Council, or other bodies. I think one of the great things that is that if, you elect, if elected, you'll be held accountable by a lot of people. There's great public interest in Norway, <laughs> apparently, for the Security Council and the job that we can <laughs> do there. So I wanted to bring in a few questions from the audience. Um, if anyone would like to, um, Katarina has the microphone. She's, she's state your name and and a brief question. Okay, hello. My name is Emil uh, Erstad. I'm uh, the head of communication in Norwegian Helsinki Committee. Thank you for the discussion. Um, uh, my question is: uh, China has become more destructive on human rights, not only within its own borders the last years, but also in other countries on, uh, on the international arena. And Norway uh, negotiated its normalization agreement with China a few, year, few years back. Uh, and, and my question is, how will this normalization agreement uh, affect Norway if elected to the Security Council? Um, for example, when it comes to uh, cost sharing, as, uh, as uh, suggested by the uh, Human Rights Watch in, in the panel. 
Well, I'd, I'd be happy to answer that because the normalization agreement doesn't affect us at all in that respect. Uh, it has no bearing on our ability to criticize China, for instance, and we do. Uh, and on, on Bruno's point on, on cost sharing, we were among, uh, about a year ago, among 21 countries delivering a letter uh, on Xinjiang to China. We've been taking this case in the Human Rights Council, we've been taking it bilaterally. What we have experienced, though, is that after we normalized the relationship with China again and got up a political dialogue that we hadn't had for six years, that when, when the scope of our bilateral relations got bigger, the room for discussing human rights also was stronger. So that means that when we have resumed our political dialogue and our annual political consultations with China, human rights is a big part of that. We didn't have that opportunity for six years because we didn't have any kind of political dialogue whatsoever. So of course we continued to give criticism multilaterally or international arenas, but we had no way of giving it bilaterally. That chance we have now, and that's a chance and opportunity that we are using to have that dialogue. Espen, would you like to add on China? I, I mean, I agree both with the question and the answer. It, it is crucially important that it does not appear or doesn't, that it isn't like that, that we can't raise critical human rights issues with China. It's also very good that we now have a broad engagement with China, and I think that should be used to its full extent on all issues. Mm -hmm. And I would like to use the opportunity to say that we're not in the Cold War, neither are we in the 1990s. So this world where sort of the good guys were basically in the West and everything good came in a package, human rights, rule of law, free trade, uh, you know, international organization were sort of the predominance of the West. Well, we're deeply divided in the West on all these issues, deeply divided. And other countries are engaging better on some of these issues than on others. So um, because of the complexity of today's world, we can't expect everything to come in one good package. We have to search allies and partners where we find them. China might end up as a closer partner on climate change than the um, America. Mm -hmm. America is probably going to remain a better partner on human rights than China. Mm -hmm. so, so you need this complexity, and I think the NGO world, I think they know, but it's extremely important that this brief moment of liberal predominance, unfortunately, is gone. I, I, I deplore that. I think that's sad, mm -hmm. but it's gone. It's a very, very different world from the 1990s, it's much harder, much tougher, and requires an ability to, to have a calibrated, complex, intelligent foreign policy in which you have some bearing principles, but you also see seek the partnerships you can find. Mm. Asking the NGO world, uh, <laughs> how do we address China's human rights issues in this world? Bruno? So uh, th the letter that the foreign minister referred to is exactly the type of cost-sharing that I wanted to, to signal to, and it's very true. Yes, Norway did sign up to this letter, but it did take some time. There was one first attempt. There were a dozen countries. None of them wanted to read it out. None of them. Mm. Hmm? The second time, there were, yes, two dozen, and one decided that I'm going to read it. That was the UK, to their credit. But now we need the next stage. What's going to happen after this? Is it just going to be one letter, or are we going to have actually a common stand? There's going to be a very important summit of the EU and China, for example, in Leipzig. Is the EU going to prepare to have, and I know you're not part of the EU, but, but is the EU going to have a common position? Or basically are going to allow China to divide and conquer before that Leipzig summit? It would be very different if the EU has a common position on Xinjiang, on Hong Kong, but also about China's role internationally. Because if the Myanmar army has gotten away with the ethnic cleansing of the Rohingya, it's basically because China has allowed it because there is no Security Council scrutiny. And this is where one has to be intelligent, strategic, and find allies. And I think you all saw last week the really extraordinary news of the International Court of Justice in The Hague ruling on provisional measures against Myanmar on a case presented by The Gambia. Mm -hmm. The Gambia, talking about small countries with political courage. We tried to enroll, I'm not going to say which, but a number of Western states to do what The Gambia did. They all backed out. They all said, oh no, because China is behind Myanmar. And there came little Gambia, and it won the first round. Mm. And so this is what we need, political courage. Political courage. If Gambia could stand up to China on Myanmar, I am sure many other countries could too, especially if there's cost sharing and you have strategies to deal with this rising dominance of China abroad. But you and Pena first. Yeah, I'd, I'd just like to sort of follow up on that, because that is something we have been saying for so many years now, that 
what has been lacking in the approach to China is international solidarity. So Norway was in the freeze of six years and everybody just looked away. Then there was a, a brief moment where Sweden looked to be going into the same and, and nobody sort of stood up for them. Sweden. So it's, it's, it's basically, <laughs> it, it, we need, I mean, 75 years out, and I'm not going to make, yeah, I am going to make a dramatic sort of uh, um, similarities. S 75 years ago, uh, Auschwitz was liberated. Today we have a million or two or even more uh, Uyghurs or um, mm. other Muslims uh, in, in internment camps, at least, uh, in China. And, and we are looking away. Uh, so there has to be a coalition of countries, because I understand that country by country, China is a very, very intimidating adversary. But if this just s keeps going under the radar, uh, it is uh, a disaster. I mean, it's not only a disaster for the individuals in those camps, it's a disaster for international order uh, that might just overrules everything. Quick comments, yeah, and then we have uh, one more question after that. But I think it's a very interesting mention of Myanmar. I agree with you, Bruno. But Myanmar, the tragedy of Myanmar is also based in that a lot of Western countries and a lot of Western NGOs falsely misinterpreted Aung San Suu Kyi as kind of a democratic liberator. It was a major mistake. Uh, the, 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 the reform government that we saw from 2011 onwards was very complicated and difficult, but it was more promising than what happened when she came. But, but because she had this stamp of eternal acceptance from the West, including a lot of human rights NGOs, it was difficult for us to work with other Asians like Indonesians and try to help this soft transition that was on this way. And then now it's recalibrated to China, and I knew because I met her many times, she was very pro-Chinese. Uh, the West didn't hear that because they heard an eloquent Western-sounding woman, uh, but a major mistake. And that also is a message to reflect upon because we, we screwed it up and it was some of the most well-meaning people in the world helped screw up Myanmar much more than what was necessary. So the world is more complex than it looks on the front page of a Western newspaper. We had one more question in the back. There's a microphone coming our way. Uh, thanks. My name is Kjersti Koffel and I work in Save the Children in Norway. I'm wondering, so one of the areas that Swedes took great responsibility for is the children in armed conflict. And uh, we're very pleased that, the, that Norway has said that you're going to bring this agenda forward if you get the seat. Mm -hmm. And as we all know, grave violations against children are drastically increasing and urgent action is needed. So I was wondering if you could, uh, Minister, please elaborate on how you're planning to move forward this agenda. Thanks. Well, uh, as you rightly point out, we, we have said that this is one of the topics that we would like to continue. Um, and the reason for that is, um, as you know well, uh, the reporting that you and others have done to map how the situation is for, for children in armed conflict. As you may know, uh, on in 2018, in August in 2018, we issued a new humanitarian strategy for Norway. Protection is at the core of that strategy, and that goes specifically for protection of children in, in humanitarian situations. And as we all know, conflict in humanitarian situations are very often linked. What we do see is that there are many aspects that affect children that are not on the Security Council agenda today. One of them that we would like to put on the agenda, and fortunately, there has been over the past year a little bit of movement in that direction, is climate change and security. Because children are very much affected by the fact that climate change very often leads to conflict. And it also leads to the deprivation of livelihoods for their parents. They are not able to attend school. And they are very, very vulnerable in these kind of conflicts. So to focus on issues that also have indirect and I would say direct consequences for children is going to be extremely important. This is not only about children as children, it is also about what kind of situations and circumstances that do affect them. And climate change is actually one of those uh, who we see mostly now are affecting people. And also ha we are now having a much larger proportion of internally displaced people than we've had ever in history. Uh, we were one of the champions behind the new panel on internally displaced people that the Secretary General of the UN now established because we see that internally displaced people and children included in these situations are extremely vulnerable due to the fact that they are in a way very often in a no man's land. They do not have the rights of refugees 
but they do not have the opportunity to get help from the state that they are in because they are displaced. So they are especially vulnerable. Bruno. Yeah, just a, two quick comments on this. As much as we celebrate you know, the interest of Norway or many other states on thematic issues like children, armed conflict, women, peace and security, that is great. But we also need the country-specific application. Because mm. mm. what we find often is that countries want to window dress in talking about these issues in the abstract. Mm. But what happens then, children in Myanmar, which is an agenda item in the Security Council. Mm -hmm. What we find is megaphone when it's generic, when it doesn't hurt any specific country. Mm. But then when it has to be on Myanmar or South Sudan, somehow there's just nothing that comes out. Mm -hmm. And secondly, on the children armed conflict agenda, I think we have to recognize that the current Secretary General has not been defending the integrity of the reporting mechanism on children armed conflict. Not only has he politicized it, allowing certain states to get off the list, Saudi Arabia, for example, um, and we haven't seen the pushback here. And this is basically to raise another issue, because obviously we talk about the P5, the 10 elected members. There is another very important component in the Security Council, and that is the Secretariat. Mm. And here, the Secretary General, the current one, and I'll say it by name, Antonio Gutierrez, is basically failing on the human rights front. He has basically killed the human rights upfront strategy, which grew out of the failures of the United Nations in Sri Lanka. Um, after a report done by Ambassador Rosenthal last year on Myanmar, what you basically see is a secretariat that is not really living up to its human rights obligations. He doesn't use Article 99, which allows the Secretary General to bring issues of concern to the attention of the Security Council. And what we need here is all member states, but Norway and the other candidates, if they make it to the Security Council, to tell the Secretary General that he has to stand up for this, and especially for mechanisms that already exist, like the Children and Armed Conflict Reporting Mechanism. I think it's very, I mean, I believe it's a good thing in the campaign to put up some thematic issues, but of course it only matters if you apply them when it's relevant. So that, that's, that's essential, because the, our experience was that we also had all these great campaign themes. Then when, you, when you're there, it's uh, one damn thing after another, and you have no control on what's on the agenda because the world decides, right? It, things happen. So, so the, but what Sweden did for it, what we did, I think, but uh, Sweden, uh, which I saw from very, I, I was very often in the council when Sweden was there briefing on Cyprus, and Sweden was very consistent in always making sure that they were looking for these themes in any resolution, any. So, so, so you could al you always knew that in Sweden's intervention and in Sweden's contribution, some of these themes would be reappear in concrete cases. Mm. So of course that's that's what that's how you do it in reality. Uh, and and yes, then there will be cases where that's quite plain sailing and cases where that will going to be tough. But you're elected to do what you're told the assembly to do. And for those two years, you have a much bigger mandate from the world to speak up and do things than you have on a normal day, because it matters. That was a nice bridge, I think, to what I mentioned earlier, that you bring also the user perspective, because you were a special envoy to Cyprus and interacted with the Security Council from a peacemaker perspective. So if elected, if Norway was were to be elected, what would you expect from an on-the-ground peacemaker uh, position? I think, I mean, my experience is that it was very important to have good relations to some particularly concerned uh, states. They could be P5 or non-P5s, and we had both. Uh, but to make sure that they did their utmost to maintain council unity. I had the privilege, I mean, I've spoken a lot to Staffan de Mistura, who was my neighbor in the centrist across the ocean in Syria, a much bigger, more difficult complex. He hardly ever had the privilege of council unity. I did. Because, I mean, and, well, Cyprus failed, we know, but, but we actually had a very high degree of council unity, and, and sometimes it could be a P5 member, at other times it could be a non-permanent, maybe Sweden, who then reached out to make sure to bridge differences, because the capital I brought to the, to the discussions on having the council behind, united behind me was tremendous. And I, I pointed out to the parties that there are not so many envoys who can say that, but I can, because we worked hard to keep sort of an, a, a principled approach from uh, from the from the council. Mm -hmm. So so, and that requires that sort of hard work, daily work, nitty gritty work, in order to keep that alive. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's something that you know, when a important when an envoy or two deals with something Norway cares about, make sure that you give her 
or him the necessary support by by providing by helping provide that unity. And what also noticed since we mentioned Sweden is that if Sweden took a stance on this, I rec it was in New York, it was in Stockholm, it was in in my case in Cyprus, in Ankara, in Athens, and Brussels, and it was consistency out there. So it wasn't only a view held in New York, it was a view that permeated Swedish foreign po policy, so I felt that support everywhere I went. Mm -hmm. And there was always a Swedish embassy available to be supportive of that work. Mm -hmm. uh, in Eriksen Sareide, looking back at last time, it was pointed out we won. Um, we had that place before. What, what did we achieve when we look at back at it now? And, and, and if you go into the future, what is it that you hope we will achieve if we win this time? Well, I think Espen alluded to some of the things that we did achieve, and it was especially uh, the sanctions committee on Iraq. And the fact that it was more or less a deadlock because it was almost impossible to get goods into Iraq because it was seen as something that had a dual-use um, uh, dual perspective. Uh, what we did was, in my opinion, looking back at it, and this can be uh, thoroughly read about in the white paper that came out in 2003 when we kind of went through what we achieved in the council. But one of the things that was especially prominent was the way we were able to kind of kind of open the box so that humanitarian goods and humanitarian aid could go in. That was not a given because <laughs> as Espen said, even even goods like chlorine was then prohibited and you have to have it. And it's a is it is an essential part of daily life. It sounds a bit strange, but it is uh, when when you live in a very, very hot country. Water purification. Yeah. Exactly. And that is why I think that our approach to this, because we had no desire, actually, of sharing the sanctions committee on Iraq, but the others threw trust in us because they thought we could maybe have some possibilities to do something different. Uh, we also had the issue of 9-11 mm -hmm. that came on immediately. No one planned for that. And I think that, I think that alluded to, to the fact that has been mentioned that we can have all the plans in the world and we are going to, to stick with those priorities. But we also have to take into account that the Council's agenda will be shaped by what is happening in the world around us. Unfortunately, sometimes that could overshadow the whole agenda. And, and there is no doubt that the 9-11 issue was a major issue for the Security Council from the beginning uh, of our term, and it lasted <laughs> through our term and, and then decades after. But, but still, I think it's important to, to hold on to the ideas and, and the visions that we have going into this. And I have to say that even though the Security Council is a lot of hard work, it's extremely difficult. I am, however, kind of inspired by the work that has been done over the past years by smaller countries with independent voices that has actually been able to, to kind of to break some new ground in the way that the Security Council is working on issues that we have covered here. So it is possible. We have, uh, as our kind of first and foremost uh, idea with the Security Council membership, if we are elected, is to do everything we can to uphold the rule of law and international, uh, international law. And that entails human rights, I can tell you, because that's a, that's a major part of everything uh, a Security Council should do. But I also think that we can bring some experience that can be useful for the Council in peace and reconciliation efforts. Because we are seen as an honest broker, we are asked by countries and parties in conflict to mediate. We do not own the results, the parties own the results, but we are seen as a broker that can actually get the parties together around the table. We're doing uh, things, uh, we've been doing things in Colombia, the Philippines, uh, Sri Lanka, the Middle East, and now most recently Venezuela. And it's not because we are seen to be able to kind of swing a magic wand and solve every conflict. Cyprus is also one very good example where, where Espen was uh, really present. But it is we are seen as a country that can, can deal with the mediation uh, period and we can work in different ways to, to, to uh, get results. And, and one of my last comments will be that I very often hear when we do our campaigning now, that we shouldn't be part of the Security Council because it would make it difficult for us to balance between great power politics. Mm. I disagree strongly with that argument. 
And the main reason is we are doing that today. We are doing that on a daily basis, inside or outside the council. That's life of smaller countries nowadays. We have to deal with the trade conflict between China and the US on a daily basis. We have to deal with every other great power policy aspect of the world today. Mm. It's nothing that we have to do more of in the Security Council. Yes, we will be exposed to many other conflicts, but we are today. And as an independent, independent voice, a small country, um, we, we maybe see that more than other states that are, for instance, EU members or, or others. But, but that's part of our daily routine as a government, as a foreign ministry, and we still have to do that. Quick comment, Jon uh, Peder. Will human rights be better off with Norway in the Security Council? It can't get worse. No, I, 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 um, I, I must say that we, abs I mean, you won't, I won't say, yeah, they'll be better than Canada or better what than... What does it depend but, but certainly, on? But certainly Norway is a country with a very clear voice on human rights that is known for it. It also has other should I say, strengths and experiences that are important in that role. So, absolutely, in, you know, I'm Norwegian, I hope you win. Uh, <coughs> um, so, uh, in, in that sense, absolutely. But, but it, as I've said, it comes with a lot of responsibility that we are expecting Norway to live up to, and, and it comes with scrutiny, certainly in the, in the big world, but also from civil society and hopefully the Norwegian population. Mm. Um, uh, are we getting towards the end? We are getting towards because the end, so you need to, and I have a one last question for Bruno, but you can finish Yes, uh, because I would just like to bring up, because I know I was going to be asked it, <laughs> I was told, um, prioritization. Uh, and I'm going to pick up on something you said in your opening remarks, which I think is really important. And I think it was your predecessor, it might have been you, so excuse me if it was you, who said that human rights, in a sense, is the canary in the mine. Mm. So if you see a rapidly deteriorating human rights situation, you are looking at something that could get a lot worse, and you said it. So I would, uh, I know there are many, many things, but to, to have a kind of view of the world where you could, you know, where your goal is to prevent conflict rather than going after. So let me give an example, the Rohingyas. You didn't have to be a brain surgeon, I mm. understand they're particularly intelligent, uh, to see that that could easily end mm. up in the ethnic cleansing mm. that it ended up with. If we had had early intervention, if the Security Council had done something before, then maybe it would have been acceptable for the Chinese because it wasn't, we're going in with our guns and whatever. Uh, maybe it could be based on Nor Norway's talents or peace negotiations, etc. Maybe we could have done something. Just to give an example where nothing seems to be happening in that sense, the treatment of Muslims in India, hmm. I mean, is incredibly troubling, not only because of the possible communal violence and sectarian violence within India, but we've got Pakistan there, we've got two nuclear powers. Sort of looking at possible mm. conflict uh, prevention through the lens of the canary in the mine, which mm. can be human rights si situations, and particularly deteriorating human rights situations, is something I think you should consider as one of your priorities. Very quick comments for... Yes, the just, uh, just to add on what Jumpeter is saying, because I I've totally agree with you. And that is also one of the reasons why I think the connection between the human rights pillar of uh, the UN and the Security Council needs to be strengthened. It has to do with funding. Uh, we are now the biggest funder of the OHCHR. But it also has to do with reporting, presence in the Security Council, uh, country situations where we need in advance to know what is happening. If that mandate and that connection is strengthened, it would make the work of the Security Council on Human Rights easier. Mm -hmm. So I'm also hoping that that's something we can contribute with. Mr. Stanio, I want to give you the final word. Um, what are your expectations to Norway wh when you listen to this? What could a small country as Norway, uh, should a small country as Norway do? And what should we absolutely not do? So I'm going to have very high expectations, <laughs> huh? uh, and we'll hold you to account if you are elected. Um, first of all, not to shy away. Mm -hmm. For example, uh, the minister just said reporting. There are so many voices that are indispensable that need to be heard in the Security Council that are not, because one state basically has an issue with it. We, Norway should not shy away from procedural votes. There are no vetoes on procedural matters. Mm -hmm. That means that all you need are nine votes to support you. On Myanmar, with regards to that cannery in the mine, it would have been so easy to get nine votes multiple times 
to have different people brief as to what is happening in Myanmar. But there was no will. There was no collective political will to get, actually get that procedural vote. That's one thing. Secondly, to leverage Norway in that underworld. You can generate leverage that then helps you out on other issues. Because let's not forget, the Security Council is a transactional body. Trump, transactional? Yes, the Security Council is transactional. You transact all the time. And hopefully it's transactions for good. Third, involve civil society, voices from the ground, the ARIA formula. Once again, talking about small states, the country that created the ARIA formula was Venezuela. It was not a permanent member, it was Venezuela. Fourth, engaging with the Secretary General and holding him to account. If somebody is failing in reporting, it is the Secretary General. It is the Secretary General. He is not doing his job correctly in defending human rights. There are three pillars, peace and security, development and human rights, and the human rights has fallen by the wayside in his reporting to the Security Council. Mechanisms that have been enshrined and are technical are being undermined. Um, and lastly, to yes, to work with others in and outside the council. Let's not forget that in the Security Council, in the end, the E10, they hold the quorum. In order for the Security Council to meet, it needs the E10. In 1950, the Soviet Union learned a very dire lesson. They walked out of the Security Council. That was not smart of them. But what if the E-10 walked out of the Security Council because they felt that the P-5 are dismally failing in their responsibility? The Security Council couldn't meet. The P-5 would be held to account. That would be something remarkable and revolutionary. And I think the P-5 would say, holy shit. <laughs> That's an interesting thought. I want to thank you all so much for coming, for making us all uh, wiser. And thank you all for coming and attending. Uh, we'll see you next time. <laughs>